Once again, we meet for Christmas and a ghost story. So a roaring log fire, a glass of something you desire, and that will provide the perfect scenario for me to commence. Father Macclesfield's Tale by R.H. Benson. Monsignor Maxwell announced next day at dinner that he had already arranged for the evening's entertainment. A priest whose acquaintance he had made on the Palatine was leaving for England the next morning, and it was our only chance, therefore, of hearing his story. That he had a story had come to the canon's knowledge in the course of a conversation on the previous afternoon. He told me the outline of it, he said. I think it very remarkable, but I had a great deal of difficulty in persuading him to repeat it to the company this evening. But he promised at last. I trust, gentlemen, you do not think I have presumed in begging him to do so. Father Macclesfield arrived at supper. He was a little, unimposing dry man with a hooked nose and grey hair. He was rather silent at supper, but there was no trace of shyness in his manner as he took his seat upstairs, and without glancing around once, began in an even and dispassionate voice. I once knew a Catholic girl that married an old Protestant three times her own age. I entreated her not to do so, but it was useless, and when the disillusionment came, she used to write to me piteous letters, telling me that her husband had in reality no religion at all. He was a convinced infidel, and scouted even the idea of the soul's immortality. After two years of married life, the old man died. He was about sixty years old, but very hale and hearty till the end. Well, when he took to his bed, the wife sent for me, and I had half a dozen interviews with him, but it was useless. He told me plainly that he wanted to believe. In fact, he said that the thought of annihilation was intolerable to him. If he had had a child, he would not have hated death so much. If his flesh and blood in any manner survived him, he could have fancied that he had a sort of vicarious life left. But as it was, there was no kith or kin of his alive, and he could not bear that. Father Macclesfield sniffed cynically and folded his hands. I may say that his deathbed was extremely unpleasant. He was a coarse old fellow with plenty of strength in him. And he used to make remarks about the churchyard and, and, and in fact, the worms that used to send his poor child of a wife half fainting out of the room. He had lived an immoral life too, I gathered. Just at the last it was... Well, disgusting. He had no consideration. God knows why she married him. The agony was a very long one. He caught at the curtains round the bed, calling out, and his words were all about death and the dark. It seemed to me that he caught hold of the curtains as if to hold himself into this world. And at the very end, he raised himself clean up in bed, stared horribly out of the window that was open just opposite, and I must tell you that straight away beneath the window lay a long walk between sheets of dead leaves with laurels on either side and the branches meeting overhead. So that it was very dark there even in summer and at the end of the walk away from the house was the churchyard gate. Father Macclesfield paused and blew his nose. 
Then he went on, still without looking at us. Well, the old man died and he was carried along this laurel path and buried. His wife was in such a state that I simply dared not go away. She was frightened to death and indeed the whole affair of her husband's dying was horrible. But she would not leave the house. She had a fancy that it would be cruel to him. She used to go down twice a day to pray at the grave, but she never went along the laurel walk. She would go round by the garden and in at a lower gate and come back the same way or by the upper garden, and this went on for three or four days. The man had died on a Saturday and was buried on Monday. It was in July and he died uh, about eight o'clock. I made up my mind to go on the Saturday after the funeral. My curate had managed along very well for a few days, but I didn't like to leave him for a second Sunday. Then, on the Friday at lunch, her sister had come down, by the way, and was still in the house. On the Friday, the widow said something about never daring to sleep in the room where the old man had died. I told her it was nonsense and so on, but you must remember she was in a dreadful state of nerves and she persisted. So I said I would sleep in the room myself. I had no patience with such ideas then. Of course, she said all sorts of things, but I had my way, and my things were moved in on Friday evening. I went to my new room about a quarter before eight to put on my cassock for dinner. The room was very much as it had been, rather dark, because of the trees at the end of the walk outside. There was the four-poster there, with the damask curtains, the table, and chairs, and the cupboard where his clothes were kept, and so on. When I had put my cassock on, I went to the window <clears throat> to look out. To right and left were the gardens, with the sunlight just off them, but still very bright and gay with the geraniums. And exactly opposite was the laurel walk, like a long, green, shady tunnel dividing the upper and lower lawns. I could see straight down it to the churchyard gate, which was about a hundred yards away, I suppose. There were limes overhead and laurels, as I said, on each side. Well... I saw someone coming up the walk, but it seemed to me at first that he was drunk. He staggered several times as I watched. I suppose he would be 50 yards away, and, and once I saw him catch hold of one of the trees and cling against it as if he were afraid of falling. And then he left it and came on again slowly, going from side to side with his hands out. He seemed desperately keen to get to the house. I could see his dress, and it astonished me that a man dressed so should be drunk, for he was quite plainly a gentleman. He wore a white top hat and a grey cutaway coat and grey trousers, and I could make out his white spats. Well, then it struck me he might be ill, and I looked harder than ever, wondering whether I ought to go down. When he was about twenty yards away, he lifted his face, and it struck me as very odd, but it seemed to me... He was extraordinarily like the old man we had buried on Monday. But it was darkish where he was, and the next moment he dropped his face, threw up his hands, and fell flat on his back. Well, of course I was startled at that, and I leant out of the window and I called out something. He was... Moving his hands, I could see, as if he were in convulsions, and I could hear the dry leaves rustling. Well, then I turned and 
ran out and downstairs. Father Macclesfield stopped a moment. Gentlemen, he said abruptly, when I got there, there was not a sign of the old man. I could see that the leaves had been disturbed, but that was all. There was an odd silence in the room as he paused, but before any of us had time to speak, he went on. Of course, I didn't say a word of what I had seen. We dined as usual. I smoked for an hour or so by myself after prayers, and then I went up to bed. I cannot say I was perfectly comfortable, for I was not, but neither was I frightened. When I got to my room, I lit all my candles and then went to a big cupboard I had noticed and pulled out some of the drawers. In the bottom of the third drawer, I found a grey cutaway coat and grey trousers. I found several pairs of white spats in the top drawer, a white hat on the shelf above. That is the first incident. Did you sleep there, father? said a voice softly. I did, said the priest. There was no reason why I should not. I did not fall asleep for two or three hours, but I was not disturbed in any way, and I came to breakfast as usual. Well, I thought about it all a bit, and finally I sent a wire to my curate telling him I was detained. I did not like to leave the house just then. Father Macclesfield settled himself again in his chair and went on in the same dry, uninterested voice. On Sunday, we drove over to the Catholic Church, six miles off, and I said Mass. Nothing more happened till the Monday evening. That evening, I went to the window again about a quarter before eight, as I'd done both on the Saturday and Sunday. Everything was perfectly quiet, till I heard the churchyard gate unlatch and I saw a man come through. But I saw almost at once that it was not the same man I had seen before. It looked to me like a keeper, for he had a gun across his arm. And then I saw him hold the gate open an instant, and a dog came through and began to trot up the path towards the house with his master following. And the dog was about fifty yards away. He stopped dead and pointed. I saw the keeper throw his gun forward and come up softly, and as he came the dog began to slink backwards. I watched very closely, clean forgetting why I was there, and the next instant something, it was too shadowy under the trees to see exactly what it was, but something about the size of a hare burst out of the laurels and made straight up the path, dodging from side to side, but coming like the wind. The beast could not have been more than twenty yards from me when the keeper fired, and the creature went over and over in the dry leaves and lay struggling and screaming. It was horrible. But what astonished me was that the dog did not come up. I heard the keeper snap out something, and then I saw the dog making off down the avenue in the direction of the churchyard as hard as he could go. The keeper was now running towards me, but the screaming of the hare, or whatever it was, had stopped, and I was astonished to see the man come right up to where the beast was struggling and kicking, and then stop as if he was puzzled. I leant out of the window, and I called to him, Right in front of you, man, I said, For God's sake, kill the brute! 
He looked up at me and, and then down again. Where is it, sir? He said. I can't see it anywhere. And there lay the beast, clear before him all the while, not a yard away, still kicking. Well, I went out of the room and downstairs and out to the avenue. The man was standing there still, looking terribly puzzled, but the hair was gone. There was not a sign of it. Only the leaves were disturbed and the wet earth showed beneath. The keeper said that it had been a great hare. He could have sworn to it, and he had orders to kill all hares and rabbits in the garden enclosure, and then he looked rather odd. Did you see it plainly, sir? he asked. I told him not very plainly, but I thought it a hare too. Yes, sir, he said. It was a hare, sure enough. But you know, sir, I thought it'd be a kind of silvery grey with white feet. I never saw one like that before. The odd thing was that not a dog would come near. His own dog was gone, but I fetched the yard dog, a retriever out of his kennel in the kitchen yard. And if ever I saw a frightened dog, it was this one. When we dragged him up at last, all whining and pulling back, he began to snap at us so fiercely that we let go, and he went back like the wind to his kennel. It was the same with the terror. Well, the bell had gone, and I had to go in and explain why I was late. But I didn't say anything about the colour of the hair. That was the second incident. Father Macclesfield stopped again, smiling reminiscently to himself. I was very much impressed by his quiet air and composure. I think it helped his story a good deal. Again, before we had time to comment or question, he went on. The third incident was so slight that I should not have mentioned it or thought anything of it if it had not been for the others. But it seemed to me there was a kind of diminishing gradation of energy which explained... Well, now you shall hear. On the other nights of the week I was at my window again, but nothing happened until the Friday. I had arranged to go for certain next day. The widow was much better and more reasonable and even talked of going abroad herself in the following week. On that Friday evening I dressed a little earlier and went down to the avenue this time instead of staying at my window, at about twenty minutes to eight. It was a rather heavy, depressing evening without a breath of wind, and it was darker than it had been for some days. I walked slowly down the avenue to the gate and back again. I suppose it was fancy, but I felt more uncomfortable than I had felt at all up till then. I was rather relieved to see the widow come out of the house and stand looking down the avenue. I came out myself then and went towards her. She started rather when she saw me and then smiled. I thought it was someone else, she said. Father, I have made up my mind to go. I shall go to town tomorrow and start on Monday. My sister will come with me. I congratulated her and then we turned and began to walk back to the Lime Avenue. She stopped at the entrance and seemed unwilling to come any further. Come down to the end, I said, and back again. There will be time before dinner. She said nothing but came with me, and we went straight down to the gate and then turned to come back. I don't think either of us spoke a word. 
I was very uncomfortable indeed by now, and yet I had to go on. We were halfway back, I suppose, when I heard a sound like a gate rattling, and I whisked round in an instant, expecting to see someone at the gate. But there was no one. Then there came a rustling overhead in the leaves. It had been dead still before. Then, I don't know why, but I took my friend suddenly by the arm and drew her to one side, out of the path, so that we stood on the right hand, not a foot from the laurels. She said nothing, and I said nothing, but I think we were both looking this way and that as if we expected to see something. The breeze died and then sprang up again, but it was only a breath. I could hear the living leaves rustling overhead and the dead leaves underfoot, and it was blowing gently from the churchyard. Then I saw a thing that one often sees, but I could not take my eyes off it, nor could she. It was a little column of leaves, twisting and turning and dropping and picking up again in the wind, coming slowly up the path. It was a capricious sort of draught, for the little scurry of leaves went this way and that, to and fro across the path. It came up to us, and I could feel the breeze on my hands and face. One leaf struck me softly on the cheek, and I can only say that I shuddered as if it had been a toad. Then it passed on. You understand, gentlemen, it was pretty dark, but it seemed to me that the breeze died, and the column of leaves, it was no more than a little twist of them, sank down at the end of the avenue. We stood there perfectly still for a moment or two, and when I turned, she was staring straight at me, but neither of us said one word. We did not go up the avenue to the house. We pushed our way through the laurels and came back by the upper garden. Nothing else happened, and the next morning we all went off by the eleven o'clock train. That is all, gentlemen.